You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, it is the first of the minor prophets. If, you open, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the, the Old Testament, open towards the middle, you'll probably hit Isaiah and turn to the back about five books and you will hit the book of Hosea right after the book of Daniel. As you're going to Hosea, think about these questions. Do you know what it's like? Do you know what it feels like to be betrayed? Do you know what it feels like to give yourself fully to a person in love only to have that person turn around and reject your love? Do you have a sense of the pain that comes when the promise of love and fidelity and commitment is broken? Not because of wrongdoing on your part, but because of new affections for a different person. Those are the kind of questions that we are forced to wrestle with as we read through the book of Hosea. Hosea is probably one of the most underread, underappreciated books among the prophets. I say that because when you read through it, it is a powerful book that gives us a glimpse at the pain experienced when sinful people who have professed to love God turn their back on Him and love other things instead. Very often, uh, in, 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 in fact, really, it's even though chronologically they do not follow immediately after one another, theologically it is uh, surely an act of God's providence that the book of Daniel and the book of Hosea come together when they do. For in Daniel you see God exalted as the all-sovereign God, as the one who stands above all things, as the ruler of history, who has authority even over the pagan peoples of the world. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign will. And yet you turn to the book of Hosea. You turn to the very next book and here God is pictured as the one who is genuinely heartbroken over the failure of his people to love him. He is one who is not just offended in his holiness, but one who endures pain because his people have turned aside from him and pursued other gods. And that glimpse that we have into God and His life comes into laser-sharp focus through the prophet Hosea himself. For God calls him to do something that most would consider unthinkable. Unlike anyone else in the Bible except for Christ himself, Hosea is called to embody and live out the message he presents to God's people in a unique and deep way. In fact, so shocking is the calling on Hosea's life that some have tried to say it didn't actually really happen. Now what you find in the opening chapters as some kind of a parable or some kind of play acting as some of the other prophets were called to engage in in their ministries. But the text will not allow us that option. The scripture itself will not allow us to go there, but rather it presents the events of Hosea's life as a genuine calling, as a real historical series of events that, events that would mark his life forever. His calling was to help convey the message of the deep, gracious love that God demonstrated to his people, who forever remains faithful to his people, even while they reject that love by their own unfaithfulness. In verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hosea, we're told the word of the Lord that came, this is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
the, uh, Hosea is telling us when he first received his calling as a prophet and when he ministered uh, to the people of Israel. And so when you read all 14 chapters of Hosea, you don't, you're not supposed to understand that it's just all one big long message that he gave. These are different messages at different times that have all come through the message of Hosea who ministered uh, during the reign of four different kings of Judah as well as the days of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. When we looked with the rest of the scriptures, what we understand is that Hosea is coming right behind the prophet Amos that we looked at last week during the 8th century BC. And what we find is both Israel and Judah, though prospering financially, physically, it is ravaged by poverty spiritually. They were financially decadent, but religiously indifferent. And so as Charles Dickens would later write about another time and place for God's people, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Israel's infidelity to God and the love he had displayed toward Israel for hundreds of years now was on show for all to see. They weren't hiding anything. Their sin was flagrant. Their rebellion of lovelessness toward God, obvious not just to those in Israel, but to all the nations around And it's in the midst of those times that God called his prophet Hosea to bear a message to his people. It was first a message of judgment, a message of judgment that the people would face because of their persistent sin. And yet it was also a message of hope. For while they had not remained faithful to God to fulfill their promise to love him, he would always remain faithful in his promise to love his people. And so as we look at the book of Hosea this morning, what we want to see more than anything is the faithful God of unfaithful people. The faithful God of unfaithful people. And we want to see not only Israel's sin, but we want to see God's character as an antithesis, as as the opposite of Israel's sin. And hopefully in beholding God in this way, we will be driven to see also the glory of Christ himself. So three ways in which we want to do this this morning. First, we need, to see, we need to see God as the faithful husband of an unfaithful wife. The faithful husband of an, as an unfaithful wife. In verse 2, we see this calling that Hosea receives from the Lord. Chapter, two, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, frankly, that, that's, as, that's as bad as it sounds. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get more uh, upfront than that. There's nothing else like it in the scriptures. Nevertheless, there it is. God tells his servant, the prophet, go marry a prostitute. Go marry an adulteress because this is what Israel has become to me. Hosea's very life then is to be lived out as a dramatic retelling of the story of God's relationship to Israel. You see, though God had showed great and deep love for Israel, she ultimately rejected him. God's people turned from the living God, from worshiping him, from serving him, trusting him to worship false gods, most notably the Canaanite fertility god Baal. Thus Israel was spiritually unfaithful. As a nation, she had become an adulteress. And, you know, it's one thing to tell someone that. It's one thing to send the prophet and say, tell these people, tell my people that they have become an adulteress to me. They have whored themselves out to other gods. It's one thing to tell that in a message. That's quite another to live it out the way Hosea was called to. 
Hosea is not just called to preach to the people you have rejected the Lord in your first love. He was called to show it with his own life, with his own emotions. He was called to show what it meant to be betrayed at the deepest level. Can you imagine what it would have been like for him to walk down through the streets and every once in a while catch a knowing smirk from another man who had been with his wife? Or perhaps to receive the hostile glares from people who knew what kind of woman Gomer was. Or perhaps from the wives whose husbands had cheated on them with Gomer. We have to stop here and ask ourselves, putting ourselves in Hosea's place, how would you respond to that kind of thing? How would you respond to that kind of calling on your Life. Admittedly, it's not clear whether Hosea was told to seek out a known prostitute or is simply told in advance what kind of woman his wife would turn out to be. But frankly, it doesn't matter. The, book, the, book, the message of the book is still the same. The, the, the outcome of events in Hosea's life and what they hold for us is still the same. The kind of emotional pain that Hosea was going to go through was still the same. And again, we have to ask ourselves, is that the kind of call that we want? I don't think so. I never heard someone saying, oh, I just wish God would give me the same kind of call he gave Hosea. I never heard that in seminary. Have you ever heard that in a church before? I mean, nobody wants this kind of calling. And, you know, I know some of you weren't here, but, but perhaps you know the story of, uh, of Jonah who was called and said, look, go and proclaim salvation to a people that, that do not know me, that they might be spared. And he says, ah, forget that. Who wants to, who wants to go and proclaim God's grace to the nations? Pfft, I'm done with that. And he walks off. And God has to do all kinds of things to get him back where he wants to go to save this, this people. Now, you would expect from Hosea something, right? Hosea, go marry a whore! Take her as your wife! Love her! Or she will betray you in every way! God, I don't, I don't know that I can do that. God, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know that I, I want that calling. We read nothing of that. Nothing of that from Hosea. Instead, he does exactly what God calls him to do, marrying this woman who was a prostitute and would, who would eventually return to being a prostitute. And so this is what we read in verse 3. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son to him. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Hosea and Gomer's children now become a means of sending a message to Israel. The first is named Jezreel. Jezreel was a town, the name of a town that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 9, where the house of Jehu massacred a massive amount of people, including the king's own family. Therefore, to name, in the culture of Israel at that time, to say, Name your child Jezreel would be like someone telling us today, name your child Auschwitz. Name your child Hiroshima. Name your child Ground Zero of New York. 
Everyone knows what happened there. The connotations would have been uh, riveting in their minds. The Jehu massacre occurred, though, a hundred years before this, and yet it was symptomatic of the nation's problems. Violence and sin as the result of worshiping false gods. And now God says judgment is going to come even because of that. Gomer then bears two more children, but this time they are not Hosea's. The first is a girl whom Hosea is instructed to name in the Hebrew, Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy or no love. For Hosea, it's Hosea saying, this, this child is not the product of my love for Gomer. It's, it's from something else. Somebody else is the father. God's mercy with Israel has run out, God says. Therefore, name the daughter this for judgment, for Israel's sins will come. And there is the third child named in the Hebrew, Lo-Ami, which can be translated, not my son or not my people. Even if there was maybe a question about the parentage of the daughter, it is clear now, this is not Hosea's son. He is not the father. Even worse, God is now saying, though I have affectionately called you my people, though I have called you Israel my son, that will be the case no more. You have acted like you were not my people, therefore you will not be my people anymore. I will not recognize you as my people. Now again, put yourself in Hosea's place. Imagine a husband who showed every imaginable affection to a wife. Yet she pursues other lovers. Worse, imagine a husband. Imagine a husband who worked diligently at his job in order to buy his wife the best things that he possibly could afford. The best food, the best clothes, the best pottery for the house. And, and imagine one day that, that, that he, he comes back from the market and he's got just armloads of stuff out of love for his wife that he has bought for her. And he, he lays them out on the table and he thinks she's not there. So he turns around and goes back to work. And after he leaves, one of, one of his wife's lovers comes in and he sees all of the gifts that has been bought for this man's wife and he picks them up and takes them back into the bedroom and lays them out before the wife and takes credit for purchasing these things, giving these things out of love for the wife and the wife, the wife believes him and shows her affection in return to this man who has in fact not given any of these things, provided any of these things for this woman. That's more or less what God says the situation is in Israel. To worship Baal was to engage in temple prostitution. And Israel was so far removed from the Lord that he says she actually thought all the best things she had came from the false god Baal and not him. In chapter 2, we read Israel said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. But the Lord says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which she then used to serve Baal. In every way imaginable at this moment in history, Israel was Gomer. Despite incredible loving care from God, she rejected him and prostituted herself out to false gods. She did not remain faithful. The nation of Israel did not remain faithful to her Lord, even though he had always been faithful to her. That's the image we have of Israel in this book. But more than that, more than just being an unfaithful wife, God also shows Israel to be an unfaithful son. This is the second thing that we want to see, that we want to see the faithful father of an unfaithful son. 
Although the controlling metaphor in Hosea, that is to say the one that's most prominent, uh, is of Israel as the unfaithful wife, even as Gomer was an unfaithful wife, there is also another image that runs throughout the book, and it is this image of the father-son relationship between the Lord and Israel. This goes all the way back to the naming of the children, Lo Ami, not my son or not my people. And in chapter 11, the imagery comes into sharp focus. Here's what the Lord says, Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, God says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He will not raise them up at all. It's hard not to be moved by God's words here. Here is the picture of God calling Israel out of Egypt adopting the nation as his son. If you remember, it's a reference back to the Exodus where God's people uh, have found themselves going in as a, as, a, as a large family from 12 sons of about 70 people. And while they're in Egypt, God blesses them and they have kids and more kids and their kids have kids and their kids have kids who have more kids and more kids until there's like 2 million uh, people, Jewish people in the nation of Egypt. And originally they went there to escape a famine. And now uh, no one knows uh, really why they came in the first place or anything about them. And so they become scared that this, this Jewish people, these Israelites, they're going to rise up and rebel and they're going to take over the nation. And so they put them into slavery. Even though they have forgotten God, God still hears their cry and he says that I am going to redeem them. He calls a man by the name of Moses to go and to proclaim to Pharaoh to let his son, let the nation of Israel go, that he may go out into the wilderness and worship the one true and living God. And here God is saying, you were, you were, like, you were like an infant child in Egypt. You, you were young as a people, and you, 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 you didn't know how, quite how to live as a people. You didn't know who I was. But I came and I called you. I adopted you out of Egypt. I redeemed you out of Egypt. And just like a, a, a little baby, I, I, I knelt down and I, picked, I held your hands and helped teach you to walk. And when you fell and you got hurt, I was the one who picked you up and brushed you off and cleaned off the wound and healed you. And yet as you got older and I continued to call you with loving kindness and affection to be my people, you turned away more and more and more. Instead of loving me, your father, you turned away and sought other gods. No, God continued to call Israel back from its sin and love. Israel refused to listen. Instead of being the faithful son who carries out his father's wishes, Israel has rebelled over and over and over again. And in chapter 8, they refuse to trust God. And instead, they put their confidence, the prophet says, in wealth and in military might. They refuse to follow after God in loving things like justice and mercy and righteousness. So in chapter 10, we read, You have plowed iniquity, Israel. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitudes of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. 
Israel was the unfaithful son because they looked nothing like their father, God. You see, in, in that culture, much more so than today, whatever the father's occupation did, more, more, than, more chances than not, that's what the son's occupation would also be. So if the father was a baker, guess what? The son, more than likely, is going to grow up and he's going to be the baker. If the father is a metal worker, the son is going to grow up and be the metal worker. If the father's name was Bill Gates, the son is going to grow up and build computers. You get the idea here? Whatever the father did, that's what the son is also going to do. Okay, but more than just occupation. Likewise, the son's character was often a reflection of the father's character. If the father was a just man, the son would see his father being just. He would see this is how a young man is to live. And so he would imitate it. He would become a just man. If the father was loving towards his wife, then the son would see this is, how, this is how a husband treats a wife. And therefore he would be loving when he grew up to be loving towards his wife as well. The son learned how to live from the father. And in that culture, that meant Israel failed miserably as God's son. Didn't learn a thing from the Father. Israel failed to follow in God's footsteps, rebelling time and time again. And I know I, I, I use that phrase again and again and again, again and again and again, almost in every sermon, because I, I want you to understand it has been hundreds of years since the Exodus. And God is so patiently telling them, don't do that. Turn back to me. And sometimes he will allow, he will allow uh, judgment to come just so that they will realize, what are we doing? We're God's people. God, help us. He says, I'll come down and I'll help you and I'll save you again. And he does this over and over again, but they never, never learn. They still keep turning to sin and away from God. Likewise, the son's character. Israel continued in sin. Continued in sin and never, never imitated the character of their heavenly father to the nations around them or even to one another. So here are the two pictures of Israel that we see in the book of Hosea. The unfaithful wife and the unfaithful son, which stand in direct contrast to the God who was always faithful. Frankly, when you, if, if, you were to, if you go back and you start reading all of Israel's history, you, you get to this point and you say, they deserve to be judged. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. They deserve whatever God sends to them because he has been so patient and so gracious and so merciful and so loving and they have ignored, rejected, and trampled on it time and time and time again. But here's the most amazing thing. Though these people deserve ultimate and final destruction, God says, I'm not willing to do it. I am not willing to do it. I will continue to show them mercy. And after all the descriptions of judgment that is coming for Israel being a, an adulterous wife in chapter 1, God says this. Despite, this is just after he says, call, the, call the, the child not my people. He says, yet, verse 10 of chapter 1, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then in chapter 11, after showing Israel to be the unfaithful son, the Lord asks in verse 8, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And then again in chapter 2, In that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will renew, remove the names of the Baals from their mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say to me, you are my God. (laughs) He goes through and he shows how despicable Israel has become. And yet he says, the last thing that you will hear from me, though I am sending judgment, the last thing you hear from me will not be a word of judgment. It will be a word of mercy. It will be a word of of love. And I will reverse the sinful trend in which you have caught yourself up in. And instead of rebelling against me, I will do a work in you whereby you will come to love me again. You will be my people again. Like a faithful husband, God will again go to his wayward wife and show her affection and woo her back. Like a spurned father, God will reach out to his son again and cause Israel to act like they are his. And all this he will do, not because they deserve it, because he is a merciful and loving God. The question that we should be asking ourselves right now is though, how is he going to do that? When is he going to do that? When will this great change in Israel take place? When will this this great change from being unfaithful to faithful happen? And what we see throughout the Bible is that this mercy and love for his people will be fully realized through Jesus Christ. And this is the last thing I want to see this morning. The faithful God who provides a faithful husband and a faithful son. Christ comes in fulfillment of all these promises first by being the faithful son that Israel never was. Christ comes and he does what Israel could not do. Always be faithful to the Lord. Always demonstrate the character of the Heavenly Father. The Gospel of Matthew is clearest about this. In chapter 1, Matthew lays out the genealogy of Jesus' birth to show he is born Jewish from the house of David. Then in chapter 2, as Herod is killing Jewish children because he feels like his throne is threatened, Jesus is about two years old and his parents are warned by God, flee into Egypt and escape Herod's wrath. Afterward, as Jesus and his family returned to Palestine, Matthew says, This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That sound familiar? That's Hosea chapter 11. But here's the, here's the question that should be in your minds. Hosea chapter 11 is not a prophecy. Hosea chapter 11, God's not predicting anything is going to happen. He's looking back at the Exodus. He says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, what is Matthew doing here? How is he reading this text? What is going on? What's going on, frankly, is an example to us of how we're supposed to put our Bible together, particularly in relation to Jesus Christ. Matthew is showing us that Jesus came not just in direct fulfillment to specific prophecies. He didn't just come because Isaiah 53 said he was going to come, or Psalm 22 said he was going to come, but rather he comes in such a way that all of the Old Testament is wrapped up and fulfilled in him. 
There is a what, what we sometimes call a typological, a spiritual fulfillment to the Bible. Jesus is coming to be all that Israel should have been but failed to be. He is coming to be the true Israel, the true Son of God. So in chapter 3, we see Jesus of Matthew going through the waters of baptism just as Israel itself was baptized through passing the waters of the Red Sea unharmed during the Exodus. In chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days just as Israel is in the wilderness being tempted for 40 years. But unlike Israel though, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. He succeeds, succeeds in the testing. He does not fail. He remains the true and faithful Son of God. And in fact, this is the pattern of his life. Though enduring great temptation, the greatest temptation any person has ever known, Jesus endured it without sin. He always obeys the Father. He always seeks the glory of the Father. He always trusts the Father and lives by the strength that he provides. Therefore, it is no surprise when you get to Matthew 17. And the voice of God booms out of heaven about Jesus saying to the disciples, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But Christ was not only God's faithful Son. As God in the flesh, He also became the faithful husband to God's people. And in order to understand this, we have to go back to the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea chapter 3, God directs Hosea to do what he promised he would one day do, redeem his wife Israel. Chapter 3 has to be one of the most powerful texts in all the Bible. Listen to what it says. Hosea is speaking and he says this. The Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, that is that which is offered in worship to the false gods. So, Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a latex of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now to get the full weight of this passage, you have to understand the culture of Hosea's day. At this point, Gomer is up on the auction block as a slave, possibly because of debts we really don't know. We're not told, and frankly, it doesn't matter the story. What matters is that she is up on the auction block as a slave. That meant that at the appropriate time for the bidding to start, she would have been led out, led up to a pedestal. Her clothes would have been stripped off for all to inspect the goods upon which they were about to bid. And here is Hosea forced to bear the shame of Gomer being up for sale. Men staring at his wife, perhaps making crude jokes or leering. Worse, he has to bid against other men for his wife. Not to mention the the indignity of people recognizing him as her husband. They would have been talking to each other saying, what in the world is he thinking? Why is he here bidding on this woman who betrayed his trust, made him look like a fool and a laughingstock in the city? Why would he pay that much for her? Why does he even care? She's probably going to do the whole thing over again and just go back to her life as a prostitute. And yet, just like Hosea, Jesus came to redeem his bride as well, the church. 
though righteous in every way, Jesus had to bear the shame of his church, his bride. Jesus took upon himself the shame of their sin, even hanging naked on a Roman cross like some vile criminal. More than that, Jesus just couldn't pay money to redeem his bride, the church. No, instead he offered his own life up as a ransom to buy them out of their slavery to sin. And so Peter the Apostle can say in his first letter, No, Christians, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That is, you were ransomed from all of this sinfulness, just like we see in Israel back in this story. You, were inher- you inherited all the sinful ways, and yet you were ransomed. You were bought out from those futile ways. Not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What's more, just as God promised that His people would be given new life to love the Lord. Hosea 6.2 says, After two days He will revive us, and on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. So also Jesus would rise back from the dead, back from being crucified on the cross on the third day taking his rightful place as the heir of David's throne, the king of Israel and the king and Lord of all things. Why did Christ do this? Why did he redeem his bride in this way? In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us, and he sets it up as an exhortation to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his wife, the church, and gave himself up for her. Why, Paul? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why Jesus died for his people. Because like Israel, we are sinful people, and we are in need of redemption. Moreover, even in being redeemed from the penalty of our sins, we still remain a sinful people. Yet Christ said that as the faithful husband, as the perfect husband, He comes not just to redeem us out of sin, but to die and then be raised back to life in such a way that He will cleanse us from sin one day. So just as God has promised, we will no longer go to false gods. We will no longer turn away to sin. But fully, we will look to the Lord our God and say, You alone are our God and we are your people. In Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, the main character is a man named Jean Valjean. He spent years and years and years doing hard labor to prison camp in France just before the French Revolution because when he was a teenager, he was hungry and stole a loaf of bread. And all those years have hardened him into a bitter thief. But when he gets out, he has no place to go. He has no place to live. And he stumbles into a town and sleeps on a bench in the city square. But the police come and they say, you can't sleep here. This is vagrancy. And he says, well, where should I go? And they tell him, you go to that church. They'll take you and they'll give you a place to stay. Though it's in the middle of the night and Valjean is kind of timid and knocking on the door, the bishop comes and he welcomes him in. He feeds him supper and tells him he can stay as long as he wants. And in the film version, Valjean tries to sleep and he begins to have nightmares of being back in that, in that hard labor camp in prison. And he wakes up and he goes and he decides that he's done and that he needs to move on and that the way he's going to get his start in life is by taking the silver the bishop let him eat with real silver spoons and forks and knives, plates and goblets. He's going to take all these things and go and sell them and start his life somewhere. But the bishop wakes up and he catches him. And Valjean, angry and upset and afraid, he punches the bishop out and takes off. The next morning, the police come back to the church. They've caught Valjean. The police jokingly say, you know, he claimed you actually gave him the silver. 
Valjean stands there looking ashamed and defeated. The bishop comes up and he takes the hood off Valjean's face so he can look him directly in the eyes. And he says, Valjean, I'm disappointed in you. Why didn't you take the silver candlesticks? After all, they were very, that was very foolish. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. And the police look astounded. And you say, what? You mean you actually gave him the silver? And he says, oh, yes, I gave him the silver. And with this look of complete unbelief on the police face, the priest says, go inside and, and have a glass of wine, and I'll be in there in a minute. And he tells the police to uncuff Valjean. It's an incredible act of grace. The priest actually does take the silver and the candlesticks, puts them in Valjean's bag, and hands them back to him. And the criminal stammers in disbelief, why are you doing this? The priest looks at him hard and he says this, Jean Valjean with his silver, I have bought your soul. I ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Here was a man that deserved to be punished for his crimes. But at great cost, even after suffering great indignity, the bishop showed him mercy and grace. Both in this story and the picture of, of, of Israel through the message of the prophet Hosea, what we see is a picture of us as a sinful, rebellious, unfaithful people. God creates us. He gives us life. He gives us health. He gives us the clothes on our backs. He gives us our jobs and our homes. He gives us the children that we love and the family that we long to see. And yet we say, so what? I don't need you. I'm not going to be thankful to you. I'm going to live how I want to live. I am going to go off and do my own thing and be my own man. And for that, we deserve death. We deserve eternal death in hell. And yet God comes to us in love. And He says, though you have trampled on me, though you have not acknowledged that I am your creator, that I am your God, that I deserve your worship, I love you because I have created you. Therefore, I will send my Son and He will take your place. And He will go up to a cross and bear humility and suffering and my judgment in your place. But more than that, I will not leave Him dead. I will raise Him back to life. So that if you will simply turn and trust in Him, if you will trust that Christ died for your sins, that He was raised back to life, then I will consider all of the judgment you deserve to have fallen on Him at the cross. And I will count all of His faithfulness to be your own faithfulness. I will adopt you as my son, and I will be your faithful father. And no more will you have to worry. No more will you have to go after other gods. For I will always be here. I will always be all sufficient for you. I, if you will let me to be, if you will open your heart, you will find I will be the treasure of your life. The one who never leaves you or never forsakes you. More than that, I'll not just forgive your sins. I will put my own spirit into your heart to begin to cleanse you from your sins so that one day you will not just be declared righteous, considered righteous, you will be righteous even as my son is righteous. Jesus Christ came as the hope of Israel in fulfillment to all these promises made to the prophet Hosea and this morning he is our hope too. So I implore you for the first time or perhaps after a long time of stagnant, Christian living, turn to the living God in faith. Turn to the living God in faith through Jesus Christ who redeemed you as the faithful son and who promises to love you as the faithful husband. Father, we are amazed that you would show your grace to us in this way. 
Father, it just takes our breath away that for those that would sin and rebel against you, that you still love us and desire us to be your people. Father, I pray that that would leave a lasting impression on our lives that we might truly trust you. And Father, not to earn our salvation, but in thankfulness and love, live as your faithful bride, the church. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.